Father God, home is a wonderful place, a place of warmth, of shelter, of safety, and of love. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have invited us into your home, a home which has got space for everyone, and there is a table prepared for us to sit round with you and your lovely son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts will be open to enter. We know that the guilt which we might feel might stop us is taken away, that your love washes us clean, that there's no reason for us not to step through the threshold and spend time with you, think about you, and be changed by being in your presence. So bless us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's lovely to welcome uh, Dave with us this morning, and he's going to speak to us in a few moments, but first we're going to read together from Genesis chapter 18 and the first 16 verses. Thanks, Julie. Genesis 18, chapters 1 to 16. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw the three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayers of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Come up, Dave, and encourage us. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Nice to be uh, back here again. Let's start with a question. Can you remember what you had for breakfast this morning? How about what you had for dinner three days ago? Hmm. Yeah. I, I can't remember either, actually. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Our lives are punctuated by meals but often we don't think about it very much. But just once in a while, 
a meal is really memorable. Liv and I were thinking about what makes meals memorable occasions. You know, they, uh, as I said, they punctuate our lives. We're not like wild animals that can sort of, you know, kill a prey once and dine off it for weeks and not have to kill again for uh, for a long time. We like spending time together, preparing, eating, sharing food. But just once in a while, it's something we remember. Now, let's adjust this a little bit. Now, what is it that makes a meal a memorable occasion? It comes with the food, very obviously. Um, when um, my daughter um, spent a year living in Macclesfield, she and Viv uh, discovered um, uh, what, at first sight, looked like a you know treatment chair for a little sandwich bar, uh, but turned out to be an extremely good bistro restaurant. So, uh, you know, judging by outward appearance would have been very misleading. And uh, the, uh, the food was so good that uh, she went back time and again over the year that she was living in that, uh, in that area. And if you want an advert, it's a Chestergate Bistro in Macclesfield. Well worth a visit. So sometimes it's about the food. Sometimes it's about the place. Perhaps when you've been on, uh, on holiday. I can remember a, a fish restaurant beside the Lake of Tiberias. I can remember a, a cutlet up a Greek hillside. I can remember having dinner right on the edge of a deep gorge in France with, uh, in a restaurant with just a, a very sort of flimsy um, wall between me and uh, you know, several hundred feet sheer drop. So it can be about the place. Sometimes it's about the consequences of the meal. There was one meal during a company event in Spain where we were taken to a ranch and served paella. And in the paella was a prawn. And in the prawn was an antibiotic-resistant Campylobacter. And more than that would be too much information. And sometimes it's about a special occasion. In my my last job, running a a professional institution, um, every year I used to have to attend several black-tie dinners. Um, Even in the 21st century, they're they're quite popular uh, among professional people for, for networking. And sometimes those two can be memorable, if only from the sheer boredom of one or two politician speakers. Um, it can be perhaps a family birthday or a wedding. Um, I can remember my own wedding reception in a, in a Cambridge college. Uh, Viv can remember the, 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 the pork and the creme brulee. Um, I actually remember it more from my father-in-law's chair falling apart underneath him and dumping him on the floor. But, uh, but it was memorable. And sometimes, of course, it's about the people. When we were in uh, Australia uh, a bit over a year ago, it was good to meet up with a couple who had been at King's Heath, uh, uh, an ex-colleague and her husband, and, and some people that they had only met on, on Facebook. So lots of reasons why a meal can be memorable, sometimes for, for several of those reasons. And, of course, in the Bible there are some pretty memorable occasions too. We just read about one in Genesis 18. It would have been a very significant memory for Abraham and Sarah. You'll notice that... Um, It was sort of automatic that you extended uh, very generous hospitality to to travellers. That was an important part of the culture. We'll we'll come back to that uh, a little later. 
and, and many people who have visited less developed countries will speak of the, the almost embarrassing lengths that people will go to to provide food and hospitality, which you know they can't really afford, but which it would be, it would be very much uh, offensive to refuse. And maybe we, uh, we don't quite find ourselves in the same position as, as, uh, uh, as Abraham and Sarah. You know, uh, not many of us have a spare fatted calf. It's more likely to be a sort of packet of burgers in the deep freeze. But um, nevertheless, who knows what an invitation to hospitality might lead to. In the other more dramatic occasions, think of Belshazzar's feast, which uh, was perhaps the worst of, of decadence and uh, sacrilege in, in misusing the, the vessels from the temple. And, and that, of course, was memorable as a turning point in the history of, of the people of God. And perhaps most of all in the Old Testament, the Passover in, in Exodus 12, the, the meal that was to be the centerpiece of the annual calendar of Israel from that day right down to, to this, almost 4,000 uh, years later. A meal each year in memory of a, the, the crucial turning point in their history, the, the final plague, the beginning of the Exodus. Although it's now a, a celebration, uh, at that time you can imagine it would have been uncertain, it would have been a scary time. Uh, Egypt was in turmoil, they were afraid for their lives. And for some of them it might seem as though that could be the last time they would gather together before they just set off into, into who knows what. And sometimes meals are, are quieter, but still full of meaning. You think of the, the bread and the wine and the roasted grain that Boaz shared with Ruth as a foreigner came to come under, as it says, and as, as we sang a few minutes ago, under the wings of the God of Israel. Or the very sparse meal that the widow of Zarephath uh, um, uh, served up for Elijah and uh, then for herself and her son showing how a, a little faith opens up the infinite generosity of God. Echoes, perhaps, of the little lad in John chapter 6 who shared his five loaves and his two fish. And look what God made of that. Meals can go to excess. You know, Proverbs warns against drunkenness and gluttony. Uh, you know what Paul had to deal with at Corinth. But nevertheless, meals remain an important part of life and life together as a family, as a church. They can be a way of getting to know people better, bringing families together, even perhaps putting, putting past differences behind you and moving on, whether that's within a biological family or a church family. And having a meal together is a pretty basic part of the Christian life. Um, when the Apostle Peter tells about the, the end of all things being near, one of the things he goes on to say is, is simply offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's in First Peter. And Paul says something similar. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And that often will mean sharing a meal together as a sort of expression of fellowship, an expression of something that you, you, you have in common. When Paul gives advice to elders, he says that they must be um, faithful, temperate, self-controlled, respectful, hospitable, and, and so forth. And Titus, similarly, in the instructions to people in a leadership role in the church. He, an overseer, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
And interesting, the word, the, the word for hospitality in Greek is philozenia. Um, excuse my Greek pronunciation. Philozenia, as any of you with a classical education, of course, will immediately have realized, means love of stranger. You know, philio as love and, and xenia as, as something foreign. In the New Testament, the word is, is usually translated as hospitality, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It's an eager, a welcoming love of strangers, philozenia, even strangers you might disagree with or might feel a little bit afraid of. And uh, that, of course, is what we saw in that introductory uh, reading that's quoted in, in Hebrews about Abraham and Sarah showing hospitality to strangers, strangers to them. Philozenia is an unusual word for us. We're perhaps more familiar with the opposite, which is xenophobia, a, an irrational fear or hatred of strangers. And that's, of course, very much in the news because of the, the xenophobia, the, the mindless prejudice against migrants of any kind, the racial hatred that's been unleashed on an enormous scale, particularly since the, uh, the Brexit referendum in the UK with an alarming growth in, in hate crime, in immigration, uh, objection to immigration, and so forth. Those, those attitudes, which are all too common, xenophobia attitudes, you'll notice are the exact polar opposite of the philozenia, the love of strangers, that we've seen throughout Scripture and that we have a direct scriptural command to exercise. Now, we know that those evils in the final analysis can never win. That's been proved once and forever by a man and a cross and an empty grave, and that's part of what this is about. But those same evils, of course, are very much with us now, and they're evils, therefore, which Christians really must oppose and speak against on every possible opportunity. So when people try to uh, talk about Brexit and the Bible, remember that as the connection. There are some things which are profoundly evil. But let's go on to the most memorable of all meals. It's 29 AD or thereabouts. It's coming up to Passover. The disciples have no idea what's going on. Jerusalem is full of rumors, full of suspicion. It's full of suspicion. Their, their rabbi was doing some fairly sort of wacky things, like hiring a donkey to ride into the city in front of crowds, but attracting them the wrong sort of attention. And yet here he, here he had, he had gathered them in secret without even a servant and kept talking about going away, about death, about betrayal. Maybe some of them thought he was going to initiate a, a final showdown against the Romans. And the, the gospel accounts tell us of, uh, of the events of that most memorable of all meals. I don't want to get into the detail of whether it's a Passover meal or whether it wasn't, but it was an occasion when Jesus chose to be at his most revealing, his most intimate with the disciples and with those who hear him. And uh, it culminates in where, where in John 17, he extends, as it were, the invitation to those around him, but also to all believers throughout the ages, those who will believe in me through your word, that he says that we all may be one, a command that Christians have managed to disobey pretty consistently for the last 2,000 years. 
And perhaps it was only in hindsight, with days, weeks, months, years later, that began to make sense to the disciples. And they would perhaps say to each other every time they meet to eat and drink together. Do you remember when he said that? And they compared their stories and wrote them down and they made a link with the, the Passover lamb and, and began to understand what he had meant. Because, you see, in an, an absolutely brilliant way, centuries before the advent of visual aids, Jesus is taking what is effectively a Jewish family meal, an everyday event, and attaches a kind of a memory hook to it so that every meal they shared thereafter would set off, as it were, a a little light in their brain and it would cause them to remember him and what he was and is and stands for. And sure, it's been formalized into 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 a service ever since... Paul had to sort out the Corinthians for misusing it. But at base, what we've got is a simple shared meal with what then would have been the simple everyday food. And if Jesus was initiating it today, it would be a cup of tea and a piece of cake or a a pint and a sandwich. It's a shared, very simple meal, a meal with him. And the important thing is that it's with him. And as we saw at the beginning... The invitation comes from him. That's why we should not exclude from the breaking of bread, because it's not our meal. We don't decide the invitations. It's not our party. We're the guests, not the host. It's his hospitality, not only to 12 people in a a room, but to all who come to him, strangers who come to be his friends then and now, and for more than 100,000 Sunday mornings in between. Wherever you come from, whoever you are, whatever your colour, race, background, whatever you've been through, the invitation is to come to him. I said that shared meals bring people together, and this meal most of all. And so when we, in a, in a couple of minutes, reenact that simple meal, we're taken straight back to that upper room and reaffirm a sort of umbilical link back to, to that meal, to the sacrifice that came after, and to what happened on that Sunday morning. It's sometimes called the Last Supper, but of course it isn't the last at all. There's another meal which Jesus mentions a lot, which we've not mentioned so far. Several of his parables describe that the kingdom, the ultimate victory over over sin and death and they describe the sacrifice of Jesus they also look back, look forward to the kind of inaugural banquet of the kingdom of God, to use that image. I want to finish with a quote from the prophet Isaiah who looked forward very poetically to the same sort of vision. And Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, a sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. 
This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Thank you.